Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Herd Mentality. Joining me today is reality TV star and up-and-coming presidential candidate. Welcome to the show. Well, I'm Josh Duggar. Thanks for joining us. Firstly, let's discuss your credentials. You know, growing up as the oldest of 19 kids and counting in our show on reality television... Ah, I must have written it down incorrectly. I thought it was keeping up with the Cardugians. My mistake. Now, how many children have you manufactured? My wife, Anne, and I have four precious children, uh, one of which is due in July. We count them from conception. Amen? <laughs> Amen. You must place a very high value on your family. And in fact, today is my wife and I's six-year anniversary. Well, congratulations. So tell me, what instilled this family sentiment in you? My parents taught us to love and respect every single person. As good a time as any to discuss your siblings. I am extremely grateful for my family. For the example they set of being selfless and taking time to love each other. Now you've invested quite a bit of time, energy and testosterone into your own sisters, I understand. That's right, exactly. And once these sexual abuse claims came to light in the media... Well, I cleaned up my act. So no prison time. Now let's discuss your morality. I truly believe that every child deserves a mother and a father. So the solid union between consenting adults. We're talking about marriage, the bedrock... Okay. How many people can be involved in such an act? Marriage is the union of one man and one woman. Gotcha. Now you've admitted to signing up with two accounts online for a site called Ashley Madison, which facilitates extramarital affairs. What prompted you to join? As I look at so many families across America... So keep swiping right. You wanted a piece of the action. Definitely. But now there's a massive leak of the Ashley Madison user database by an anonymous group called the Impact Squad. It puts us all at risk. Well, not really. Just those who signed up to it. What are your thoughts on the hackers' actions? What we're talking about here is the importance of making these things known. Hmm. Let me read here from your wish list. Giving and receiving oral sex... Tick, one night stands, tick, experimentation with sex toys, tick, bubble bath for two, tick, and good with your hands. So for any woman or women listening who are interested and keen to get in touch with you, they should go to the Ashley Madison site and... Sign up for our email updates. It's the best way to stay informed. We'll put your zip code there, first name, last name. You'll make sure you get your email and you're ready to go. You can stay informed with what's going on. Very well. Good luck on the dating scene. Josh Duggar, thanks for your time. Thank you very much. And thank you. And God bless you. Where can we read more about the Family Research Council? We have a number of resources that we work on throughout the year. I encourage people to go to our website, frcaction.org. That's frcaction.org. Hello, Living Waters. Leave a mess. Oh, fuck. <laughs> right. Ring, ring. Hello, Living Waters. This is Raylene. Leave a message for some fucking hell. What's wrong with me? Take three. Welcome to the Herd Mentality Podcast, an eclectic non-weekly mix of atheistic, humanistic and scientific conversations with complete strangers. I've never met them and they've never met me, but we're throwing caution to the wind, taking a risk with a dodgy internet connection, and God willing, entertain you with some scintillating repartee. This is a listener-supported show and you can help boost quality and quantity at HerdMentalityPodcast.com and then click on support. Your contribution makes all the difference for the show and 10% of it goes to women in developing countries. I'm your host, Questionable Adam, found on Twitter, Facebook and Google+, and it's time to meet our guests. Ladies and gentlemen, joining me to answer my physics question, I have at Evil Scientist CA. Jason, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me along. It's a pleasure, and what's your specific field of 
specialty? I'm an astronomer who specializes in education and um, uh, stellar evolution. Specifically, I study dying stars, um, uh, planetary nebula, stuff like that. So if we have gas giants, why are there still moons? Well, we have a star in the middle of our solar system, and what's it, what's it going to look like five billion years from now? Dead. Oh, <laughs> is the answer? Well, it looks kind of pretty <laughs> from a distance, but you know, from here, it's not going to be quite so pretty of a picture. Rightio. So we're uh, well, we're all doomed. We know this. We have to get off to uh, other planets. But the question I've got for you today it's a little bit closer to home. If I was sitting at a set of traffic lights, and I'm going to give you a metric here, do you use miles or kilometers? Uh, metric, science is all in SI, so metric's fine. Excellent. So let's say the speed zone is 100 kilometers per hour, and there's a speed camera that's at those traffic lights. Without exceeding 100 kilometers an hour, would it be possible to trigger or to trick the speed camera into thinking that you're going faster than 100 k's an hour via acceleration? By acceleration. There's a way to trick the camera just with geometry. We have speed cameras in, in Canada as well, and with the uh, angle, the camera's set to record at a certain angle, and if you're above that angle, every couple of degrees above that angle, they add a k of speed to your speed, even though it's not actually showing up. Mm-hmm. So it's possible to do that just moving in the right direction. For acceleration, though... The way the cameras measure your velocity is they um uh, you Doppler. most of them use the Doppler shift. Yeah. So yeah. they send out a beam of radio waves at your car that's at a known frequency. The waves bounce back. They mix the waves that are bouncing back with the waves that are going out. If the frequencies change, they'll get what are called beats because the frequency, if you're moving, will the Doppler shift will you know make it red if you're redder or longer wavelength if you're running away from the light or shorter or bluer when you're coming towards it so what it'll do they'll blend those together and then you'll get beats depending on what the difference is if they're exactly the same frequency there'll be no beats and then as you get farther out there'll be more beats Mm -hmm. the reality is it's only going to take one or two ticks of you so basically you'll be giving your instantaneous velocity as long as your acceleration is where you're, what your instantaneous velocity at, at the point of your acceleration is, is 100k per hour or less, you know, it's not going to take your picture. But because of that Doppler shift, would the camera not be fooled? So if I accelerated from a standing start of zero mm-hmm. to 100 over 100 meters, for example, yes, would that, even though I haven't exceeded 100 kilometers an hour, would that fool the camera? Well, no, because at every point along that way, if you were to kind of do it in a Zeno's paradox kind of way, are you familiar with Zeno's paradox? No, I'm not. It's a paradox where a runner is running after a turtle, and every time the turtle goes a certain distance, the runner gets half that distance. So eventually, you're cutting the half distances down, and pretty soon you're beside the turtle kind of thing, but technically you never actually get to the turtle, though reality is you would. If we take your actual time and slice all those little times between the time you were at zero relative to the camera and that you were going 100k an hour relative to the camera, at no point during that time your instantaneous speed, which is what the camera measures, would exceed 100 kilometers an hour. Now you could if you're going the other way. So if you were going from faster than 100 decelerating, of course, then your instantaneous speed would be over what the camera trigger thing is. This is, of course, assuming that your angle is all correct and all that. Gotcha. So you could, by decelerating from 100Ks towards zero, fool the camera. So it's, I've got this back to front. As long as your instantaneous speed at any moment isn't more than whatever speed it's set at, the camera shouldn't fire. Oh, well, that answers my question. <laughs> Physics is pretty straightforward sometimes. Very well. And sometimes it's not. <laughs> well, while I've got you, what's the sure. most exciting 
astronomical development that you've come across of late? Well, Pluto, of course. Um, the, the, the pictures have just been amazing. Mm. Um, it'll be fun to see the kind of data that comes back from that. Because, of course, they've got restrictions on how much stuff they can pump from the satellite down to Earth. You know, the data on you know the composition, internal composition, that'll be pretty exciting to see. Um, the Europeans have a space mission up right now called Gaia. It's a follow-on to the what was the Harpagus mission. Which the Harpagus mission measured the parallax to nearby stars, which gives us a very good determination of the distance to those stars. It's actually the geometric way of doing it, so it's a very precise distance. Finding the distance to things in astronomy is a tricky thing. Mm-hmm. And Hipparchos gave us the distance to several hundred thousand stars within about 300 parsecs. A parsec's three and a quarter light years, and a light year being about a trillion kilometers. The Gaia spacecraft, the follow-on spacecraft, is much more sensitive, so it'll be able to go out to a greater distance in space in determining these parallaxes. So we'll be able to much better refine our distance scale for other things that we can't use, you know, direct parallactic measurements to figure out. So just cranking up the resolution. Yes. Hmm. I actually do have another question that's been on my mind. It's only just occurred to me now that because I was after a physicist initially and yep. I've been fortunate enough to score an astrophysicist, the old and old and olden days. So we'd go and stick a satellite up and off it would go in whichever direction taking photographs. Yep. But before the advent of the CCD, so the digital charged couple device in a camera. Mm-hmm. How did they take a photo and send it back? There were several methods actually. The first pictures we have from the far side of the moon that the Russians took, they took an actual film camera and a complete processing facility, miniaturized of course, shoved it in the spacecraft, sent it to the moon. When it was behind the moon, it took all the pictures on regular film. Then they had a basically a facsimile scanner, kind of the same thing back they would have had in the 50s to send photographs from newspaper to newspaper. And then it would scan the physical negatives that were developed robotically in space by the spacecraft back to Earth. And that's the first pictures we got from the moon were sent by that method. That's amazing. Yeah, it is. Others use standard television Vidicon tubes, right? So basically put a TV camera in the in a spacecraft and it got transmitted back to Earth the same way that, um, you know, the Ed Sullivan show got transferred. But that must have had a chemical component to it as well, did it? No, the way uh, TV tubes work is they have a, it's basically a vacuum tube and it has an electron beam that scans the front part of that tube where there's some phosphorus. And if when light hits the phosphorus, it causes a bit of phosphorus is on the TV. Selenium. Light hits the selenium, causes builds up a bit of a charge. And as the electron beam goes by, it causes change in the current. And that's what basically gets sent back as the video information. Hmm. And another method they used, even though they didn't have CCDs, which would be an array of um, uh, photodiodes or whatever, they did have photodiodes and photocells. So they'd have a single photocell, and then they'd rotate the spacecraft, and it would make scan lines of whatever it was going by. So our first pictures of Mars, for example, from the Americans were made by this technique. You know, the spacecraft would spin, and as it spins, it reads the um, brightness information from the picture at X number a second, and that makes a pixel, bunch of pixels for one row, and then the spacecraft moves a little bit and spins around and takes the next row and so on and so forth. Right. We've been quite ingenious in getting these things done. I mean, the advent of the CCD has just been a boon to astronomy, not just for the spacecraft, but even ground-based astronomy. Because if you look at things in terms of what we call quantum efficiency, so it's the ability to detect light. So it's measured in percentage. So if you have a device that picks up every photon that falls on it, it's a 100% quantum efficient. Hmm. It picks up 50 of every 100 photons, it's 50%, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. The human eye is about 3% quantum efficient. <laughs> <laughs> so, And, and it, prior to the advent of film, that was the only thing we had. The best films ever made are about 10%. 
Mm-hmm. The cheapest CCD that they put in phones is probably between 50 and 60%. Modern professional astronomical CCDs are nearly 98% efficient. In some sense, they're more efficient than the optical system they're in a lot of the time. So an argument for intelligent design would be the iPhone, not so much evolution. <laughs> Yeah, the problem is that for the eye, if you think about the human eye, it's built backwards for detecting light efficiently. All the stuff that detects light is actually behind a layer of skin, so that's why it's so inefficient. Hmm, then it's upside down. Yeah, which, you know, makes more sense if it was just kind of slowly over time cobbled together through mutation than, you know, a brilliant designer coming in and, you know, making it. Because my goalpost for stuff like this is if we as human beings can come up with a better design than nature for something, mm-hmm. then obviously the, the, the uh, quote designer for nature wasn't very good. <laughs> this much is evident. And the way I understand the human eye is there's rods and cones in there and C cones. Yeah, rod- That's how I remember it. Uh, C for color. And the rods are only good at detecting yeah. light not colour. And that's why at night, when you walk outside, you can only see in black and white. Exactly. And that's why when you you get the general, when you're doing outreach in astronomy and you've got your telescopes all set up and people look up and they're used to the big fancy colour pictures from Hubble and they look through and they see a grey smudge, they're generally quite disappointed. (laughs) That's just the physiology of our eye. And one of the tricks that you do if you're actually just physically looking through a telescope with your eyes, you don't actually look right at the object. Mm. Because the centre part of your eye, which is the bit we use most of the time, is just mostly the cones yeah so it's really good in the daytime which is great for us evolutionarily because that's normally where we do things but it's not too good for looking at stuff at night so what you do is you use what they call averted vision you look just slightly off of the object and then the light starts falling on those co- those rods and then it's not a lot of time it literally just pops into existence hmm. i've experienced that and i think many other people have as well it's an interesting experiment to do with the kids yeah you mentioned the hubble what sort of camera technology was on that why is it still so good the hubble I mean, it's just CCD technology. It's always been CCD technology. As time goes on, we get better and better CCD. So when they did a uh, servicing, they put, you know, better, newer, better, bigger CCD in it. The reason why the Hubble does so well is, surprisingly, is mostly because of its location. Surprisingly, the Hubble's actually a very small telescope by modern standard. It only has a two-meter mirror in it. The telescopes on the big island in Hawaii, they're eight plus meters. In terms of light collecting ability, the the Hubble is actually quite, quite poor. Mm. However, it's above our atmosphere. So as light moves from one medium to another, in this case, vacuum into the air, it refracts, it bends a little bit. And it that refraction depends on a lot of things, but part of it's the density of the substance it's going through. But our air is always moving, so its density is variable. So as light comes through this moving air mass, it causes the light to bounce around a little bit, and that's why stars twinkle. Mm. What that does is it actually destroys our ability to see fine detail because it smears things around when you're looking at it through the telescope. So even though, you know, say the Keck telescope at 10 meters has way better resolution in theory, hypothetically, than the Hubble Space Telescope, it's harder for it to achieve it simply because the air, it's at the bottom of an ocean of air. And that air is moving around and causing um, a degradation of that resolution. The Hubble doesn't have that problem. So if whatever its theoretical resolution is, it's resolution is limited by the quality of its optic. There's nothing to do with the air. We can get around that a bit on the Earth by using what's called adaptive optics. Um, sometimes you'll see pictures of the big observatories, and there's this big laser shooting out of the observatory. Mm-hmm. And what that's doing is it's creating an artificial star up in the upper atmosphere by exciting sodium atoms. And what that does is they have a sensor in the telescope that looks at that light coming from that artificial star, and if it detects it moving because of the atmosphere, it jiggles a mirror to compensate. 
So they're you cheating. can get almost <laughs> Hubble quality by staying on the Earth with this technology. So it's some sort of, well, mechanical data correction. Yeah, there's a computer that detects the um, change of the, the, the way the light's coming in. It adjusts some usually mechanical mirrors That's so clever. really rapidly in real time to compensate. That's so clever. I'm of the understanding that there was some technology that was developed to detect breast cancer, and that came about from the field of astronomy. That's possible. I haven't heard of that personally, but that, that there's a lot of spin-offs. The problem when you're trying to get astronomy to the general public is that it is a purely curiosity-based science, right? Mm. I, mean, it, I mean, it's a great physics lab because the high energies in that you can get in space you can't do on Earth. But the practical applications of, you know, knowing that there's, eight, you know, eight planets and asteroids and all that is quite limited to the general public. Though you really want to know where the asteroids are, just saying that. <laughs> Ask the dinosaurs. Uh, in terms of spin-off technologies, though, it's just there's so much that's come from either our exploration of the solar system through robotics or just in our wanting to, to detect things far away. I mean, astronomers are lim- as scientists are lim- we're kind of behind the eight ball compared to other scientists is that we can't touch anything. We can only look. Hmm. So we've had to be very clever in the way we, um, uh, you know, when we gather all that light, when I mean light, I mean the entire electromagnetic spectrum. So from radio waves up through infrared and visible light, ultraviolet x-rays and gamma rays, we've gotten very good at a detecting all of that and then tweaking out every possible bit of information we can based on, you know, how much a photon has been shifted or what type of light it is or whatever. I often get asked in my field of work, I do some stuff with radios, but that's point-to-point high-speed internet. Yeah. And in part of my other job, people are often shying away from things like microwaves. It takes me about five minutes to sit down and explain to somebody the difference between ionizing and non-ionizing radiation. So what's your favorite type of radiation? My favorite type? I started in this business in radio astronomy, so I've always liked radio. In astronomy terms, radio waves are great because they're penetrating. The maps we have of our galaxy have all been done in radio astronomy because the uh, dust and gas that blocks pretty much all the other types of EM radiation the radio waves just go right on through, right? So we're able to, looking at specifically the 21-centimeter hydrogen line, we can actually measure and figure out where all the spiral arms are, except on the other side of the core, which is so dense that it's basically can try to look through a light bulb. Mm. Personally, that's where my favorite is, but it's all extremely useful. How would you... And, and the reason I ask that is a lot of people, just because they don't understand it, they're scared of it. So what is the difference between ionizing and non-ionizing radiation? just for those listening. Okay, well, ionizing radiation, that's the high-energy radiation, like gamma rays. Everything's made up of atoms. Technically, it's not orbiting, but we'd use that as the model because we like to lie to everyone, as, <laughs> as physicists, because if we tell people exactly what things are, people look at you funny. But imagine an, an atom, and we'll use a hydrogen atom because it's the simplest one. So you've got one proton positively charged in the middle and an electron zipping around it. Mm-hmm. If a photon hits that atom, it'll bounce the electron up. Now, depending on how much energy was in the photon, it tells how far up the the electron goes. It goes up in steps. It doesn't go up in a nice smooth thing, but it goes up in quantized steps. But if you get enough energy, and this is usually you're looking at really, really um, hard X-rays or gamma rays, it'll hit that atom and it'll knock that electron off. That atom's now ionized. It's called an ion because it has a positive charge. So ionizing radiation, all it does is it strips electrons off of the atoms in whatever the object is, your body and whatever. Gamma rays and x-rays are, in terms of electromagnetic radiation, are the ionizing types of radiation. Now, you can also get ionizing radiation that's not electromagnetic in the sense of um, alpha and beta particles, which are actually electrons moving very fast that are given off by radioactive decay. Or um, the alpha particle is a uh, helium nuclei, so 
two protons and two neutrons, and it gets thrown off through radioactive decay as well. And they can be ionizing as well if they have the right energies. The reason this is, well, this scares people is because ionizing radiation is cancerous. Yes, it causes mutations. People, when they're concerned about a microwave, <laughs> look, this is part of the spectrum that doesn't hurt you. You will get more damage done by stepping outside for 30 seconds in the sun. And the, the damage from the sun is coming from the ultraviolet light, which is um, a, a much higher energy light than the microwave light. But the electromagnetic spectrum, of course, the uh, wavelength, the distance between the two peaks of the wave gets shorter, the energy goes up. So anything that's ultraviolet or higher is higher energy than anything that's lower than the infrared. So microwaves, which are basically a form of radio wave, the worst that's going to happen to you is if you stand by a really, really powerful source, you'll get warm because it'll be if it's the right frequency because it's jiggling your your, um, uh, water molecules Mm. just like a microwave oven does Mm -hmm. and presumably if you started getting that kind of warm you'd you'd move but beyond that causing a physical burn in the same way that touching something hot would it's not going to cause cancer because it's not ripping your atoms apart exactly so mobile phones still proven to be safe listeners yep uh one quick final question if i may because i'm really enjoying myself so is the human eye able to be compared in terms of megapixels to a camera? I, I would say so, um, because basically the rods and the cones are acting like the little cells inside of a CCD chip that collect the light. A biologist would be able to tell you more about the actual numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you could. I, I don't know like I don't know off the top of my head what the resolution of the human eye would be based on the number of rods and cones. The resolution and the number of megapixels per se is really a function of the size of each rod and cone, like each individual rod and cone cell, compared to the actual little cell that's on the CCD chip. Mm. Um, CCD chip cells are in the on the range of five to ten micrometers in on a side. I don't know what the size of the cells in the human eye are. I'm wrong kind of scientist for that. But but it's an interesting thought experiment. So let's put it out it to is. the listeners. If you are a biologist or even not, but you have something to say on the issue, just record a segment, just an explanation, 30 seconds to a minute, as to what you think the megapixel resolution of the human eye is. Email it to me, adam at herdmentalitypodcast.com, and I'll splice it into the next episode. Yeah, because that information's out there. Excellent. I just want it here. <laughs> <laughs> very well at evil scientist ca thank you very much for your time and enlightening us no problem here's a tweet by chris krismensky i am the soul and i am a ship carrying the most precious of cargoes that never comes up on radar and never comes into port follow chris at c-e-k books and grab his latest work all these quiet places a collaboration with jen august about domestic violence on amazon or barnes and noble and joining me from london who's from bangladesh we've got arif rahman at arif arif uk welcome to the show thanks adam good to be here yes it is it's good to be here for a second time because it's well god hates us (laughs) He has not smiled upon us because we recorded a chat previously and, well, the computer in the Herd Mentality recording dungeon decided to uh, have an update and not save the file. So rather frustrating. But the good news is, is that since we recorded that chat, a lot of stuff has happened. So very briefly, bring everyone up to speed. What's your position? What do you do? How are you involved? Sure. My name is Arif Rahman. I am a Bangladeshi blogger. Currently, I'm residing in the UK. I have been involved with the atheistic blogging movement uh, in Bangladesh for the last 
eight years now. I'm one of the pioneers. We started this movement quite dis- decentralized back in uh, 2006, 2007. And since then, through a lot of ups and downs, uh, we're still continuing. And the recent attacks that you see in to Bangladeshi bloggers is actually a kind of a side effect of what we have been doing uh, in our way. We have angered a lot of Islamist extremists and they are now taking us out one by one with the help of government, obviously. So there's kind of a summary of what's been happening. Well, government, are they actively involved or are they just standing by and not getting involved in actually chasing down the perpetrators? Government, since 2013, when the first blogger was murdered, we have seen too many times government has taken a silent position while the Islamists go rampant. And occasionally we have seen government actually come out and arrest bloggers because of the accusations made by the Islamist extremists and, and, you know, all sorts of shades and colors of extremists from the Islamic origin. Hmm. And although government will not actually come out and do us any harm, but they will arrest us. And the side effect of the arrest is obviously everyone else gets really frightened of saying anything loudly. And and that is, is the objective government wanted to do, is to silence anything that didn't sing their song. Hmm. Is Bangladesh a secular country? That's a funny question, because last week I would have said no. But this week I would say, I think we can answer that slightly differently. I was actually speaking to Sky News yesterday about the same thing. If you ask a Bangladeshi a government official, what do you understand by the word secular? And you would get an answer that would stun you. To them, secularism is actually a religious pluralism. For example, government will patron any and every religion based on the proportionate number of people in the country or also the power of the religion itself. So in our view, right, the European or Western or or modern view of secularism is you as a state do not pamper any specific religion, regardless of how many members of the religious community is in that country or how powerful the religion is, but you would be kind of neutral to everybody, not pamper any specific uh, religious organization. In Bangladesh, it's not that. So the sense of the meaning of the word secular is different. But Bangladesh kind of abuses that lost in translation fact. And to the rest of the world, it will say, oh, yes, we are secular. But nobody asks them the question that do you actually mean the internationally accepted meaning of secularism? So Bangladesh came up with their own version of the word secular. And they say, yes, we are secular. But we know that they are not because they have blasphemy law. It's a bit like the <laughs> the Christians changing the meaning of words we love you, yeah. but as long as you're gay, mm, it's a very different kind <laughs> of love that is, well, more or less hate. <laughs> Conditional love. Mm. So what's been done in terms of trying to communicate? So the, the world at large trying to send a message to the Bangladeshi government. So for the last week or so, since the Nila Chatterjee murder, International Humanist and Ethical Union, along with British Humanist Association, and almost everybody across the globe, who values humanist principles are of atheistic or any kind of human rights supporters have joined their voices and come up with a condemnation letter for the government of Bangladesh. And that letter is addressed to the prime minister and the president who are kind of the head of state and described what has been happening since the murder took place and then requested a few 
recommendations. One of them is to ensure the safety of the bloggers and also pursue all the extremists and to find who is actually behind these killings and, you know, root out the problem. And most importantly, so that freedom of speech can actually live in the country, there are two blasphemy laws that we have urged to repeal. One of them is called Section 295A. It's a very old British law that is still there and abused regularly. And in 2013, they brought up another law called the Information Communication Technology Act, which actually extends the original blasphemy law into the interweb or digital area. And that has been ha- uh, b- being abused to gag free speech in the country since then. So there's been quite an extensive list of people from all around the globe who have signed this. It's a huge list. Yeah, unprecedented. I've never seen so many people joining their voices to a specific goal. Where can we see this? It's published on the IHU website. So if you go to iheu.org, if you click on the news section, it's actually on the front page. There are multiple articles about it. In this podcast, I think Adam might also add a link to that letter. No problem. You'll find it in the show notes at herdmentalitypodcast.com. So Arif, thank you very much for coming on, giving us an update. All the very best. Let's hope, fingers crossed, or we could pray that the Bangladeshi government actually reads this because there's no reason not to. It's actually been done in two different languages. So here's hoping. Yeah, we work quite hard to do a proper Bengali translation as well. And and I don't know if Bangladesh government will actually pay heed because this is one of the things I wanted to mention if you give me a few minutes. The letter, you, if you read it, it mentions the atheistic bloggers because there is kind of a confusion that Bangladesh government is trying to actually spread. Is It's, it's quite a you know broad narrative what happened during 2013. There was a uprising. So Bangladesh government is trying to br- keep the whole story within its own political agenda, which is the war criminal tribunal of the criminals. So that is that is something that Bangladesh government and Awami League actually lives on, this people's demand for justice for the war criminal tribunal. But they will not actually finish the job because their livelihood depends on it. Unfortunately, this is actually not the fact for the bloggers. The bloggers that are being killed is, is because we have spoken quite openly against religion. And that means we are atheistic bloggers. And the letter mentions that quite clearly because rest of the world don't really have any political agenda for Bangladesh. But Bangladesh don't really want to accept or acknowledge the atheistic uh, narrative that we have. That is actually the fact. I think government will just stay numb. And as long as Saudi Arabia is helping Bangladesh and Saudi Arabia stands by Bangladesh, I think the rest of the world cannot do anything to Bangladesh. It's a sad truth, uh, in my opinion. We'll take a read of it, share it about, talk about it, apply pressure, and uh, free rape. Thank you very much, Arif. You take care. You too. Cheers. Bye. Herd mentalists, hear me. It's questionable Adam here from the year 2075, communicating to you using the same time machine that Josh Duggar wished he'd had access to back in 2015. In this alternate timeline, the entire Northern Hemisphere has been overrun by the Duggar family, with the Earth's natural resources being consumed by just that genetic line and reproducing faster than a virus, it's a very shallow gene pool indeed. Now you can help. Reset the timeline by supporting the show, like Mel and Rex have done. They simply went to patreon.com slash herdmentality and pledged a few dollars per episode. This money achieves far more than you might realise. 
Firstly, it helps me to earn money in the hope that one day I might be able to afford children to compete with the Duggars. Secondly, 10% of the proceeds from this show go to helping women in developing countries using Kiva.org. Heidi, for her higher education costs in the US, Maria, for her daughter's schooling in Armenia, and Aya, who's a Palestinian refugee living in Lebanon, for her tuition. You made this happen. Thirdly, by earning money from the show, past questionable Adam is able to spend time animating the splinter views heard at the beginning of the show. Check out the chat with Josh Duggar on the Adam Riggs YouTube channel. Fourthly, if you contribute $3 an episode, you get a hand-drawn cow posted out to you. And if you contribute $5 an episode, you get your own voice message recorded by Ray Comfort himself, just like this one. Thank you for calling Living Waters. Unfortunately, Henry isn't available right now. He's busy polishing my 8-horsepower solid goblet. But, well, look, that's not important. Just leave a message and I'll make sure he doesn't get it. And lastly, when the show hits $350 an episode, we'll begin production of Raygate the Musical. So step up, be a herd mentalist. Prevent the Duggars from Duggaring this whole timeline up. Now I must run, I'm being chased by a child with three heads. Ta-da!